0: Part One, Chapter One of The Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For further information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Part One, The Tragedy of Burlstone. Chapter One, The Warning. I am inclined to think, said I, I should do so, Sherlock Holmes remarked impatiently. I believe that I am one of the most long-suffering of mortals. But I will admit that I was annoyed at the sardonic interruption." "'Really, Holmes,' said I severely, "'you are a little trying at times.' He was too much absorbed with his own thoughts to give any immediate answer to my remonstrance. He leaned upon his hand with his untasted breakfast before him, and he stared at the slip of paper which he had just drawn from its envelope. Then he took the envelope itself held it up to the light, and very carefully studied both the exterior and the flap. "'It is Porlock's writing,' said he thoughtfully. "'I can hardly doubt that it is Porlock's writing, though I have seen it only twice before. The Greek E with a peculiar top flourish is distinctive, but if it is Porlock then it must be something of the very first importance.' He was speaking to himself rather than to me but my vexation disappeared in the interest which the words awakened. "'Who, then, is Porlock?' I asked. "'Porlock, Watson, is a nom de plume, a mere identification mark, but behind it lies a shifty and evasive personality. In a former letter he frankly informed me that the name was not his own, and defied me ever to trace him among the teeming millions of this great city. Porlock is important not for himself, but for the great man with whom he is in touch. Picture to yourself the pilot-fish with the shark, the jackal with the lion. Anything that is insignificant in companionship with that is formidable, not only formidable, Watson, but sinister, in the highest degree sinister. That is where he comes within my purview. You have heard me speak of Professor Moriarty? The famous scientific criminal? famous among crooks as my blushes, Watson," Holmes murmured in a deprecating voice. I was about to say, as he is unknown to the public. "'A touch—a distinct touch,' cried Holmes. "'You are developing a certain unexpected vein of porky humour, Watson, against which I must learn to guard myself. But in calling Moriarty a criminal you are uttering a libel in the eyes of the law.' and there lie the glory and the wonder of it. The greatest schemer of all time, the organizer of every devilry, the controlling brain of the underworld, a brain which might have made or marred the destiny of nations—that's the man. But so aloof is he from general suspicion, so immune from criticism, so admirable in his management and self-effacement, that for those very words that you have uttered— he could hail you to a court and emerge you with your heart's pension as a salation for his wounded character. Is he not the celebrated author of The Dynamics of an Asteroid, a book which ascends to such rarefied heights of pure mathematics, that it is said that there was no man in the scientific press capable of criticizing it? Is this a man to traduce, foul-mouthed doctor and slandered professor? such would be your respective roles. That's genius, Watson. But if I am spared by lesser men, our day will surely come." (laughs) "'May I be there to see?' I exclaimed devoutly. "'But you are speaking of this man Porlock?' "'Ah, yes. The so-called Porlock is a link in the chain some little way from its great attachment. Porlock is not quite a sound link between ourselves. He is the only flaw in that chain so far as I have been able to test it." "'But no chain is stronger than its weakest link." "'Exactly, my dear Watson. Hence the extreme importance of Porlock. Led on by some rudimentary aspirations towards right, and encouraged by the judicious stimulation of an occasional ten-pound note sent to him by devious methods. He has once or twice given me advance information which has been of value—that highest value which anticipates and prevents rather than avenges crime. I cannot doubt that, if we had the cipher, we should find that this communication is of the nature that I indicate." Again Holmes flattened out the paper upon his unused plate. I rose, and, leaning over him stared down at the curious inscription, which ran as follows. 534 C2 13 127 36 31 4 17 21 41 Douglas 109 293 5, 37, Burlstone 26 Burlstone 9 47 One seventy-one. What do you make of it, Holmes? It is obviously an attempt to convey secret information. But what is the use of a cipher message without the cipher? In this instance, none at all. Why do you say, in this instance? Because there are many ciphers which I would read as easily as I do the Apocrypha of the Agony column such crude devices amuse the intelligence without fatiguing it. But this is different. It is clearly a reference to the words in a page of some book. Until I am told which page and which book, I am powerless. But why Douglas and Burlstone? Clearly because those are words which were not contained in the page in question. Then why has he not indicated the book? Your native shrewdness, my dear Watson, that innate cunning which is the delight of your friends, would surely prevent you from enclosing cipher and message in the same envelope. Should it miscarry, you are undone. As it is, both have to go wrong before any harm comes from it. Our second post is now overdue, and I shall be surprised if it does not bring us either a further letter of explanation, or, as is more probable, the very volume to which these figures refer holmes's calculation was fulfilled within a very few minutes by the appearance of billy the page with the very letter which we were expecting the same writing remarked holmes as he opened the envelope and actually signed he added in an exultant voice as he unfolded the epistle come we are getting on watson His brow clouded, however, as he glanced over the contents. "'Dear me, this is very disappointing. I fear, Watson, that all our expectations come to nothing. I trust that the man Porlock will come to no harm.' "'Dear Mr. Holmes,' he says, "'I will go no further in this matter. It is too dangerous. He suspects me. I can see that he suspects me. He came to me quite unexpectedly after I had actually addressed this envelope with the intention of sending you the key to the cipher. I was able to cover it up. If he had seen it, it would have gone hard with me, but I read suspicion in his eyes. Please burn the cipher message which can now be of no use to you. Fred Porlock Holmes sat for some little time, twisting this letter between his fingers, and frowning as he stared into the fire. After all, he said at last, there may be nothing in it. It may be only his guilty conscience. Knowing himself to be a traitor, he may have read the accusation in the other's eyes. The other being, I presume, Professor Moriarty? No less. When any of that party talk about he, you know whom they mean. There is one predominant he for all of them. But what can he do? Hmm, that's a large question. When you have one of the first brains of Europe up against you, and all the powers of darkness at his back, there are infinite possibilities. Anyhow, friend Porlock is evidently scared out of his senses. Kindly compare the writing in the note to that upon its envelope, which was done, he tells us, before this ill-omened visit. The one is clear and firm, the other hardly legible. Why, did he write it at all? Why did he not simply drop it?" "'Because he feared I would make some inquiry after him in that case, and possibly bring trouble on him." "'No doubt,' said I. "'Of course—' I had picked up the original cipher message and was bending my brows over it. It's pretty maddening to think that an important secret may lie here on this slip of paper, and that it is beyond human power to penetrate it. Sherlock Holmes had pushed away his untasted breakfast, and lit the unsavoury pipe which was the companion of his deepest meditations. "'I wonder,' said he, leaning back and staring at the ceiling, "'perhaps there are points which have escaped your Machiavellian intellect. Let us consider the problem in the light of pure reason. This man's reference is to a book. That is our point of departure.' A somewhat vague one. Let us see then if we can narrow it down. As I focus my mind upon it, it seems rather less impenetrable. What indications have we as to this book? None. Well, well, it is surely not quite so bad as that. The cipher message begins with a large five thirty-four. Does it not? We may take it as a working hypothesis that 534 is the particular page to which the cipher refers. So our book has already become a large book, which is surely something gained. What other indications have we as to the nature of this large book? The next sign is C2. What do you make of that, Watson?" "'Chapter the Second, no doubt.' "'Hardly that, Watson. You will, I am sure, agree with me that if the page be given, The number of the chapter is immaterial. Also that if page 534 finds us only in the second chapter, the length of the first one must have been really intolerable." "'Column!' I cried. "'Brilliant, Watson. You are scintillating this morning. If it is not column then I am very much deceived. So now, you see, we begin to visualize a large book printed in double columns which are each of a considerable length since one of the words is numbered in the document as the two hundred and ninety-third. Have we reached the limits of what reason can supply? I fear that we have." "'Surely you do yourself an injustice. One more coruscation, my dear Watson. Yet another brain-wave?" "'Had the volume been an unusual one, he would have sent it to me. Instead of that, he had intended, before his plans were nipped, to send me the clue in this envelope. He says so in this note. This would seem to indicate that the book is one which he thought I would have no difficulty in finding for myself. He had it, and he imagined that I would have it, too. In short, Watson, it is a very common book." "'What you say certainly sounds plausible.' "'So we have contracted our field of search to a large book printed in double columns and in common use. "'The Bible!' I cried triumphantly. "'Good, Watson, good! But not, if I may say so, quite good enough. Even if I accepted the compliment for myself, I could hardly name any volume which would be less likely to lie at the elbow of one of Moriarty's associates. Besides, the editions of Holy Writ are so numerous that he could hardly suppose that two copies would have the same pagination. This is clearly a book which is standardized. He knows for certain that his page 534 will exactly agree with my page 534. But very few books would correspond with that. Exactly. Therein lies our salvation. Our search is narrowed down to standardized books which anyone may be supposed to possess. Bradshaw!" There are difficulties, Watson. The vocabulary of Bradshaw is nervous and terse, but limited. The selection of words would hardly lend itself to the sending of general messages. We will eliminate Bradshaw. The dictionary is, I fear, inadmissible for the same reason. What, then, is left? An almanac. Excellent, Watson. I am very much mistaken if you have not touched the spot an almanac. Let us consider the claims of Whittaker's almanac. It is in common use. It has the requisite number of pages. It is in double column. Though reserved in its earlier vocabulary, it becomes, if I remember right, quite garrulous towards the end." He picked the volume from his desk. "'Here is page 534, column 2, a substantial block of print-dealing, I perceive, with the trade and resources of British India. Jot down the words, Watson. Number thirteen is Maharatta. Not, I fear, a very auspicious beginning. Number one hundred and twenty-seven is government, which at least makes sense, though somewhat irrelevant to ourselves and Professor Moriarty. Now, let us try again. What does the Maharatta government do? Alas, the next word is pig's bristles. We are undone, my good Watson. It is finished. He had spoken in jesting vain, but the twitching of his bushy eyebrows bespoke his disappointment and irritation. I sat helpless and unhappy, staring into the fire. A long silence was broken by a sudden exclamation from Holmes, who dashed at a cupboard from which he emerged with a second yellow-covered volume in his hand. "'We pay the price, Watson, for being too up to date,' he cried we are before our time and suffer the usual penalties being the seventh of january we have very properly laid in the new almanac it is more than likely that porlock took his message from the old one no doubt he would have told us so had his letter of explanation been written now let us see what page five thirty four has in store for us number thirteen is there which is much more promising Number one hundred and twenty-seven is—is—there is." Holmes's eyes were gleaming with excitement, and his thin, nervous fingers twitched as he counted the words—Danger! (laughs) Ha-ha! Capital! Put that down, Watson. There is danger—may—come—very—soon—one. Then we have the name Douglas, Rich country now at Burlstone House, Burlstone confidence is pressing. There, Watson. What do you think of pure reason and its fruit? If the greengrocer had such a thing as a laurel wreath, I should send Billy round for it. I was staring at the strange message which I had scrawled as he deciphered it upon a sheet of foolscap on my knee. "'What a queer, scrambling way of expressing his meaning!' said I. "'On the contrary! He has done quite remarkably well,' said Holmes. "'When you search a single column for words with which to express your meaning, you can hardly expect to get everything you want. You are bound to leave something to the intelligence of your correspondent. The purport is perfectly clear. Some devilry is intended against one Douglas, whoever he may be, residing, as stated, a rich country gentleman. He is sure—confidence was as near as he could get to confident—that it is pressing. There is our result, and a very workmanlike little bit of analysis it was." Holmes had the impersonal joy of the true artist in his better work even as he mourned darkly when it fell below the high level to which he aspired. He was still chuckling over his success when Billy swung open the door, and Inspector MacDonald of Scotland Yard was ushered into the room. Those were the early days at the end of the eighties when Alec MacDonald was far from having attained the national fame which he has now achieved. He was a young but trusted member of the detective force who had distinguished himself in several cases which had been entrusted to him. His tall, bony figure gave promise of exceptional physical strength, while his great cranium and deep-set, lustrous eyes spoke no less clearly of the keen intelligence which twinkled out from behind his bushy eyebrows. He was a silent, precise man with a dour nature and a hard Abaddonian accent. Twice already in his career, had Holmes helped him to attain success, his own sole reward being the intellectual joy of the problem. For this reason the affectation and respect of the Scotchman for his amateur colleague were profound, and he showed them by the frankness with which he consulted Holmes in every difficulty. Mediocrity knows nothing higher than itself, but talent instantly recognizes genius. And MacDonald had talent enough for his profession to enable him to perceive that there was no humiliation in seeking the assistance of one who already stood alone in Europe, both in his gifts and in his experience. Holmes was not prone to friendship, but he was tolerant of the big Scotchman, and smiled at the sight of him. "'You are an early bird, Mr. Mack,' said he. "'I wish you luck with your worm. I fear this means that there is some mischief afoot.' "'If you said hope instead of fear, it would be nearer the truth than thinking, Mr. Holmes,' the inspector answered with a knowing grin. "'Well, maybe a wee nip would keep out the raw morning chill. "'No, I won't smoke, I thank you. "'I'll have to be pushing on my way for the early hours of a case are the precious ones, "'as no man knows better than your own self. But "'But—' The inspector had stopped suddenly and was staring with a look of absolute amazement at a paper upon the table. It was the sheet upon which I had scrawled the enigmatic message. D- D- "'Douglas,' he stammered. B- Burlstone, What's this, Mr. Holmes? Man, it's witchcraft! Where's the name of all that is wonderful? Did you get these names?' "'It is a cipher that Dr. Watson and I have had occasion to solve. But why? What's amiss with the names?' The inspector looked from one to the other of us in dazed amazement. Just this said he that Mr. Douglas of Burlston Manor House was horribly murdered last night. End of chapter One, Chapter Two of the Valley of Fear, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Two, Sherlock Holmes Discourses. It was one of those dramatic moments for which my friend existed. It would be an overstatement to say that he was shocked or even excited by the amazing announcement. Without having a tinge of cruelty in his singular composition, he was undoubtedly callous from long overstimulation. Yet, if his emotions were dulled his intellectual perceptions were exceedingly active there was no trace then of the horror which i had myself felt at this curt declaration but his face showed rather the quiet and interested composure of the chemist who sees the crystals falling into position from his oversaturated solution remarkable said he remarkable you don't seem surprised interested mr mac but hardly surprised Why should I be surprised? I receive an anonymous communication from a quarter which I know to be important, warning me that danger threatens a certain person. Within an hour I learn that this danger has actually materialized, and that the person is dead. I am interested, but as you observe I am not surprised." In a few short sentences he explained to the inspector the facts about the letter and the cipher. MacDonald sat with his chin on his hands, and his great sandy eyebrows bunched into a yellow tangle. "'I was going down to Burlstone this morning,' said he. "'I had come to ask you if you cared to come with me—you and your friend here. But from what you say, we might perhaps be doing better work in London.' "'I rather think not,' said Holmes. "'Hang it all, Mr. Holmes,' cried the inspector. "'The papers will be full of the Burlstone mystery in a day or two. But where's the mystery if there's a man in London who prophesied the crime before ever it occurred? We've only to lay our hands on that man, and the rest will follow." "'No doubt, Mr. Mack. But how do you propose to lay your hands on the so-called Porlock?" MacDonald turned over the letter which Holmes had handed him. "'Posted in Camberwell. That doesn't help us much—name, you say, is assumed. Not much to go on, certainly. Didn't you say that you sent him money?' twice." "'And how?' "'In notes to Camberwell Post Office." "'Did you ever trouble to see who called for them?' "'No." The inspector looked surprised and a little shocked. "'Why not?' "'Because I always keep faith. I had promised when he first wrote that I would not try to trace him." "'You think there is someone behind him?' "'I know there is.' "'This professor that I have heard you mention?' "'Exactly. Inspector MacDonald smiled, and his eyelid quivered as he glanced towards me. "'I won't conceal from you, Mr. Holmes, that we think in the C.I.D. that you have a wee bit of a bee in your bonnet over this professor. I made some inquiries myself about the matter. He seems to be a very respectable, learned, and talented sort of man.' "'I am glad you've got so far as to recognize the talent.' "'Man, you can't but recognize it after I heard your view. I made it my business to see him.' I had a chat with him on eclipses. How the talk got that way, I canna think. But he had out reflect a reflector lantern and a globe, and he made it all clear in a minute. He lent me a book, but I don't mind saying that it was a bit above my head, though I had a good Aberdeen upbringing. He'd have made a grand minister with his thin face and gray hair and solemn-like way of talking. When he put his hand on my shoulder, as we were parting, it was like a father's blessing before you go out into the cold, cruel world." Holmes chuckled and rubbed his hands. "'Great,' he said. "'Great. Tell me, friend MacDonald, this pleasing and touching interview was, I suppose, in the professor's study.' "'That's so.' "'A fine room, is it not?' "'Very fine. Very handsome indeed, Mr. Holmes.' "'You sat in front of his writing-desk?' "'Just so.' "'Sun in your eyes and his face in the shadow?' "'Well, it was evening. But a mind that the lamp was turned on my face." "'It would be. Did you happen to observe a picture over the professor's head?" "'I don't miss much, Mr. Holmes. Maybe I learned that from you. Yes, I saw the picture. A young woman with her head on her hands, peeping at you sideways. That painting was by Jean-Baptiste Greuze." The inspector endeavoured to look interested. "'Jean-Baptiste Greuze,' Holmes continued, joining his finger-tips and leaning well back in his chair, was a French artist who flourished between the years 1750 and 1800. I allude, of course, to his working career. Modern criticism has more than endorsed the high opinion formed of him by his contemporaries." The inspector's eyes grew abstracted. "'Hadn't we better—' he said. "'We are doing so,' Holmes interrupted. All that I am saying has a very direct and vital bearing upon what you have called the Burlstone mystery. In fact, it may in a sense be called the very center of it." MacDonald smiled feebly and looked appealingly to me. "'Your thoughts move a bit too quick for me, Mr. Holmes. You leave out a link or two, and I can't get over the gap. What in the whole wide world can be the connection between this dead painting man and the affair at Burlstone?' All knowledge comes useful to the detective," remarked Holmes. "'Even the trivial fact that in the year 1865 a picture by Greuze entitled La Jeune Fille à l'agneau fetched one million two hundred thousand francs—more than forty thousand pounds—at the Portalis sale may start a train of reflection in your mind.' It was clear that it did. The inspector looked honestly interested. "'I may remind you Holmes continued, that the professor's salary can be ascertained in several trustworthy books of reference. It is seven hundred a year." "'And how could he buy—' "'Quite so. How could he?' "'Ay, that's remarkable,' said the inspector thoughtfully. "'Talk away, Mr. Holmes. I'm just loving it. It's fine.' Holmes smiled. He was always warmed by genuine admiration the characteristic of the real artist." "'What about Burlstone?' he asked. "'We've time yet,' said the inspector, glancing at his watch. "'I've a cab at the door, and it won't take us twenty minutes to Victoria. But about this picture—I thought you told me once, Mr. Holmes, that you had never met Professor Moriarty.' "'No, I never have.' "'And how do you know about his rooms?' "'Ah, that's another matter.' i have been three times in his rooms twice waiting for him under different pretexts and leaving before he came once well i can hardly tell about the once to an official detective it was on the last occasion that i took the liberty of running over his papers with the most unexpected results you found something compromising absolutely nothing that was what amazed me however you have now seen the point of the picture it shows him to be a very wealthy man. How did he acquire wealth? He is unmarried, his younger brother is a station-master in the west of England, his chair is worth seven hundred a year, and he owns a greuze. "'Well?' "'Surely the inference is plain. You mean that he has a great income and that he must earn it in an illegal fashion?' "'Exactly. Of course I have other reasons for thinking so. Dozens of exiguous threads which lead vaguely up towards the center of the web where the poisonous, motionless creature is lurking. I only mention the greuze because it brings the matter within the range of your own observation." "'Well, Mr. Holmes, I admit that what you see is interesting. It's more than interesting. It's just wonderful. But let us have it a little clearer if you can. Is it forgery, coining, burglary? Where does the money come from?' Have you ever read of Jonathan Wilde?" "'Well, the name has a familiar sound. Someone in a novel, was he not? I don't take much stock of detectives in novels. Chaps that do things and never let you see how they do them. That's just inspiration, not business." Jonathan Wilde wasn't a detective, and he wasn't in a novel. He was a master criminal and he lived last century—1750 or thereabouts then he's no use to me. I'm a practical man." Mr. Mack, the most practical thing that you ever did in your life would be to shut yourself up for three months and read twelve hours a day at the Annals of Crime. Everything comes in circles, even Professor Moriarty. Jonathan Wilde was the hidden force of the London criminals to whom he sold his brains and his organization on a fifteen per cent commission the old wheel turns and the same spoke comes up it's all been done before and will be again i'll tell you one or two things about moriarty which may interest you you'll interest me right enough i happen to know who is the first link in his chain a chain with this napoleon gone wrong at one end and a hundred broken fighting men pickpockets blackmailers and card sharpers at the other with every sort of crime in between his chief of staff is colonel sebastian moran as aloof and guarded and inaccessible to the law as himself what do you think he pays him i'd like to hear six thousand a year that's paying for brains you see the american business principle I learned that detail quite by chance. It is more than the Prime Minister gets. That gives you an idea of Moriarty's gains and of the scale on which he works. Another point. I made it my business to hunt down some of Moriarty's checks lately—just common innocent checks that he pays his household bills with. They were drawn on six different banks. Does that make any impression on your mind?" "'Queer, certainly. But what do you gather from it?' that he wanted no gossip about his wealth. No single man should know what he had. I have no doubt that he has twenty banking accounts, the bulk of his fortune abroad in the Deutsche Bank or the Credit Lyonnais, as likely as not. Some time, when you have a year or two to spare, I commend to you the study of Professor Moriarty." Inspector MacDonald had grown steadily more impressed as the conversation proceeded. He had lost himself in his interest. Now his practical Scotch intelligence brought him back with a snap to the matter in hand. "'He can keep, anyhow,' said he. "'You've got us sidetracked with your interesting anecdotes, Mr. Holmes. What really counts is your remark that there is some connection between the professor and the crime. That you get from the warning received through the man Porlock. Can we, for our present practical needs, get any further than that?' we may form some conception as to the motives of the crime. It is, as I gather from your original remarks, an inexplicable, or at least an unexplained murder. Now, presuming that the source of the crime is as we suspect it to be, there might be two different motives. In the first place, I may tell you that Moriarty rules with a rod of iron over his people. His discipline is tremendous. There is only one punishment in his code it is death. Now we might suppose that this murdered man, this Douglas, whose approaching fate was known by one of the arch criminal's subordinates, had in some way betrayed the chief. His punishment followed, and would be known to all, if only to put the fear of death into them." "'Well, that is one suggestion, Mr. Holmes. The other is that it has been engineered by Moriarty in the ordinary course of business. Was there any robbery?' I have not heard." If so, it would, of course, be against the first hypothesis and in favour of the second. Moriarty may have been engaged to engineer it on a promise of part spoils, or he may have been paid so much down to manage it. Either is possible. But whichever it may be, or if it is some third combination, it is down at Burlston that we must seek the solution. I know our man too well to suppose that he has left anything up here which may lead us to him. "'Then to Burstone we must go,' cried MacDonald, jumping from his chair. "'My word! It's later than I thought. I can give you, gentlemen, five minutes for preparation, and that is all.' "'And ample for us both,' said Holmes, as he sprang up and hastened to change from his dressing-gown to his coat. "'While we are on our way, Mr. Mac, I will ask you to be good enough to tell me all about it.' "'All about it?' proved to be disappointingly little and yet there was enough to assure us that the case before us might well be worthy of the expert's closest attention. He brightened and rubbed his thin hands together as he listened to the meagre but remarkable details. A long series of sterile weeks lay behind us, and here at last there was a fitting object for those remarkable powers which, like all special gifts, become irksome to their owner when they are not in use—that razor-brain blunted and rusted with inaction. Sherlock Holmes's eyes glistened, his pale cheeks took a warmer hue, and his whole eager face shone with an inward light when the call for work reached him. Leaning forward in the cab, he listened intently to MacDonald's short sketch of the problem which awaited us in Sussex. The inspector was himself dependent, as he explained to us, upon a scribbled account forward to him by the milk-train in the early hours of the morning. White Mason, The local officer was a personal friend, and hence MacDonald had been notified much more promptly than is usual at Scotland Yard when Provincials need their assistance. It is a very cold scent upon which the Metropolitan expert is generally asked to run. "'Dear Inspector MacDonald,' said the letter which he read to us, "'official requisition for your services is in separate envelope. This is for your private eye.' Wire me what train in the morning you can get for Burlston, and I will meet it, or have it met if I am too occupied. This case is a snorter. Don't waste a moment in getting started. If you can bring Mr. Holmes, please do so, for he will find something after his own heart." We would think the hole had been fixed up for theatrical effect if there wasn't a dead man in the middle of it. My word, it is a snorter. "'Your friend seems to be no fool,' remarked Holmes. No, sir. White Mason is a very live man, if I am any judge." Well, have you anything more? Only that he will give us every detail when we meet. Then how did you get at Mr. Douglas and the fact that he had been horribly murdered? That was in the enclosed official report. It didn't say horrible. That's not a recognized official term. It gave the name John Douglas. It mentioned that his injuries had been in the head from the discharge of a shotgun. It also mentioned the hour of the alarm which was close on to midnight last night. It added that the case was undoubtedly one of murder, but that no arrest had been made, and that the case was one which presented some very perplexing and extraordinary features. That's absolutely all we have at present, Mr. Holmes. Then, with your permission, we will leave it at that, Mr. Mack. The temptation to form premature theories upon insufficient data is the bane of our profession i can see only two things for certain at present a great brain in london and a dead man in sussex it's the chain between that we are going to trace end of chapter 2 chapter 3 of the valley of fear by sir arthur conan doyle this librivox recording is in the public domain chapter 3 THE TRAGEDY OF BURLSTONE Now for a moment I will ask leave to remove my own insignificant personality, and to describe events which occurred before we arrived upon the scene by the light of knowledge which came to us afterwards. Only in this way can I make the reader appreciate the people concerned and the strange setting in which their fate was cast. The village of Burlstone is a small and very ancient cluster of half-timbered cottages on the northern border of the county of Sussex. For centuries it had remained unchanged, but within the last few years its picturesque appearance and situation have attracted a number of well-to-do residents whose villas peep out from the woods around. These woods are locally supposed to be the extreme fringe of the great wheeled forest, which thins away until it reaches the northern chalk downs. A number of small shops have come into being to meet the wants of the increased population, so there seems some prospect that Burlstone may soon grow from an ancient village into a modern town. It is the centre for a considerable area of country, since Tunbridge Wells, the nearest place of importance, is ten or twelve miles to the eastward over the borders of Kent. About half a mile from the town, standing in an old park famous for its huge beech-trees, is the ancient manor-house of Burlstone. Part of this venerable building dates back to the time of the First Crusade, when Hugo de Capus built a fortalice in the centre of the estate which had been granted to him by the Red King. This was destroyed by fire in 1543, and some of its smoke-blackened corner-stones were used when, in Jacobean times, a brick country-house rose upon the ruins of the feudal castle. The manor-house, with its many gables and its small diamond-paned windows, was still much as the builder had left it in the early seventeenth century. Of the double moats which had guarded its more warlike predecessor, the outer had been allowed to dry up, and served the humble function of a kitchen-garden. The inner one was still there, and lay forty feet in breadth, though now only a few feet in depth round the whole house. A small stream fed it, and continued beyond it so that the sheet of water, though turbid, was never ditch-like or unhealthy. The ground-floor windows were within a foot of the surface of the water. The only approach to the house was over a drawbridge, the chains and windlass of which had long been rusted and broken. The latest tenants of the manor-house had, however, with characteristic energy, set this right, and the drawbridge was not only capable of being raised, but actually was raised every evening and lowered every morning. By thus renewing the custom of the old feudal days, the manor-house was converted into an island during the night, a fact which had very direct bearing upon the mystery which was soon to engage the attention of all England. The house had been untenanted for some years, and was threatening to moulder into a picturesque decay when the Douglases took possession of it. This family consisted of only two individuals, John Douglas and his wife. Douglas was a remarkable man, both in character and in person. In age he may have been about fifty, with a strong-jawed, rugged face, a grizzling moustache, peculiarly keen grey eyes, and a wiry, vigorous figure which had lost nothing of the strength and activity of youth. He was cheery and genial to all, but somewhat off hand in his manners, giving the impression that he had seen life in social strata, on some far lower horizon than the county society of Sussex. Yet, though looked at with some curiosity and reserve by his more cultivated neighbors, he soon acquired a great popularity among the villagers, subscribing handsomely to all local objects, and attending their smoking concerts and other functions, where, having a remarkably rich tenor voice, he was always ready to oblige with an excellent song. He appeared to have plenty of money, which was said to have been gained in the California gold-fields, and it was clear from his own talk and that of his wife that he had spent a part of his life in America. The good impression which had been produced by his generosity and by his democratic manners was increased by a reputation gained for utter indifference to danger. Though a wretched rider, he turned out at every meet and took the most amazing falls in his determination to hold his own with the best. When the vicarage caught fire he distinguished himself also by the fearlessness with which he re-entered the building to save property after the local fire brigade had given it up as impossible. Thus it came about that John Douglas of the Manor House had within five years won himself quite a reputation in Burlstone. His wife, too, was popular with those who had made her acquaintance though after the English fashion the callers upon a stranger who settled in the county without introductions were few and far between. This mattered the less to her, as she was retiring by disposition, and very much absorbed, to all appearance, in her husband and her domestic duties. It was known that she was an English lady who had met Mr. Douglas in London, he being at the time a widower. She was a beautiful woman, tall, dark, and slender, some twenty years younger than her husband, a disparity which seemed in no wise to mar the contentment of their family life. It was remarked sometimes, however, by those who knew them best, that the confidence between the two did not appear to be complete, since the wife was either very reticent about her husband's past life, or else, as seemed more likely, was imperfectly informed about it. It had also been noted and commented upon by a few observant people, that there were signs sometimes of some nerve-strain upon the part of Mrs. Douglas, and that she would display acute uneasiness if her absent husband should ever be particularly late in his return. On a quiet countryside where all gossip is welcome, this weakness of the lady of the manor-house did not pass without remark and it bulked large upon people's memory when the events arose which gave it a very special significance. There was yet another individual whose residence under that roof was, it is true, only an intermittent one, but whose presence at the time of the strange happenings which will now be narrated brought his name prominently before the public. This was Cecil James Barker of Hales Lodge, Hampstead. Cecil Barker's tall, loose-jointed figure was a familiar one in the main street of Burlstone Village, for he was a frequent and welcome visitor at the manor-house. He was the more noticed as being the only friend of the past unknown life of Mr. Douglas, who was ever seen in his new English surroundings. Barker was himself an undoubted Englishman, but by his remarks it was clear that he had first known Douglas in America, and had there lived on intimate terms with him he appeared to be a man of considerable wealth, and was reputed to be a bachelor. In age he was rather younger than Douglas. Forty-five at the most. A tall, straight, broad-chested fellow with a clean-shaved, prize-fighter face, thick, strong, black eyebrows, and a pair of masterful black eyes which might, even without the aid of his very capable hands, clear a way for him through a hostile crowd. He neither rode nor shot, but spent his days in wandering around the old village with his pipe in his mouth, or in driving with his host, or in his absence with his hostess, over the beautiful countryside. "'An easy-going, free-handed gentleman,' said Ames the butler. "'But, my word, I had rather not be the man that crossed him.' He was cordial and intimate with Douglas, and he was no less friendly with his wife a friendship which more than once seemed to cause some irritation to the husband, so that even the servants were able to perceive his annoyance. Such was the third person who was one of the family when the catastrophe occurred. As to the other denizens of the old building, it will suffice out of a large household to mention the prim, respectable, and capable Ames, and Mrs. Allen, a buxom and cheerful person who relieved the lady of some of her household cares the other six servants in the house bear no relation to the events of the night of january sixth it was at eleven forty five that the first alarm reached the small local police station in charge of sergeant wilson of the sussex constabulary cecil barker much excited had rushed up to the door and pealed furiously upon the bell a terrible tragedy had occurred at the manor house and John Douglas had been murdered. That was the breathless burden of his message. He had hurried back to the house, followed within a few minutes by the police sergeant, who arrived at the scene of the crime a little after twelve o'clock, after taking prompt steps to warn the county authorities that something serious was afoot. On reaching the manor house the sergeant had found the drawbridge down, the windows lighted up and the whole household in a state of wild confusion and alarm. The white-faced servants were huddling together in the hall, with the frightened butler wringing his hands in the doorway. Only Cecil Barker seemed to be master of himself and his emotions. He had opened the door which was nearest to the entrance, and he had beckoned to the sergeant to follow him. At that moment there arrived Dr. Wood a brisk and capable general practitioner from the village. The three men entered the fatal room together while the horror-stricken butler followed at their heels, closing the door behind him to shut out the terrible scene from the maid-servants. The dead man lay on his back, sprawling with outstretched limbs in the centre of the room. He was clad only in a pink dressing-gown which covered his nightclothes. There were carpet slippers on his bare feet. The doctor knelt beside him and held down the hand-lamp which had stood on the table. One glance at the victim was enough to show the healer that his presence could be dispensed with. The man had been horribly injured. Lying across his chest was a curious weapon, a shotgun with the barrel sawed off a foot in front of the triggers. It was clear that this had been fired at close range, and that he had received the whole charge in the face blowing his head almost to pieces. The triggers had been wired together so as to make the simultaneous discharge more destructive. The country policemen were unnerved and troubled by the tremendous responsibility which had come so suddenly upon them. "'We will touch nothing until my superiors arrive,' he said in a hushed voice, staring in horror at the dreadful head. "'Nothing has been touched up to now,' said Cecil Barker. "'I'll answer for that. You see it all exactly as I found it." "'When was that?' The sergeant had drawn out his notebook. "'It was just half-past eleven. I had not begun to undress, and I was sitting by the fire in my bedroom when I heard the report. It was not very loud. It seemed to be muffled. I rushed down—I don't suppose it was thirty seconds before I was in the room. "'Was the door open?' "'Yes, it was open. Poor Douglas was lying as you see him.' His bedroom candle was burning on the table. It was I who lit the lamp some minutes afterward. "'Did you see no one?' "'No. I heard Mrs. Douglas coming down the stair behind me, and I rushed out to prevent her from seeing this dreadful sight. Mrs. Allen, the housekeeper, came and took her away. Ames had arrived, and we ran back into the room once more.' "'But surely I've heard that the drawbridge is kept up all night.' Yes, it was up until I lowered it." "'Then how could any murderer have got away? It is out of the question. Mr. Douglas must have shot himself." "'That was our first idea. But see—' Barker drew aside the curtain and showed that the long, diamond-paned window was open to its full extent. "'And look at this!' He held the lamp down and illuminated a smudge of blood like the mark of a boot sole upon the window-sill. Someone has stood there in getting out." "'You mean that someone waded across the moat?" "'Exactly. Then if you were in the room within half a minute of the crime, he must have been in the water at that very moment." "'I have not a doubt of it. I wish to heaven that I had rushed to the window. But the curtain screened it, as you can see, and so it never occurred to me. Then I heard the step of Mrs. Douglas and I could not let her enter the room. It would have been too horrible." "'Horrible enough,' said the doctor, looking at the shattered head and the terrible marks which surrounded it. "'I've never seen such injuries since the Burlstone Railway smash—' "'But I say,' remarked the police sergeant, whose slow, bucolic common sense was still pondering the open window, "'It's all very well you saying that a man escaped by wading this moat." But why ask you is—how did he ever get into the house at all if the bridge was up?" "'Ah, that's the question,' said Barker. "'At what o'clock was it raised?' "'It was nearly six o'clock,' said Ames, the butler. "'I've heard,' said the sergeant, "'that it was usually raised at sunset. That would be near half-past four than six at this time of year.' "'Mrs. Douglas had visitors to tea,' said Ames. I couldn't raise it until they went. Then I wound it up myself." "'Then it comes to this,' said the sergeant. "'If any one came from outside—if they did—they must have got in across the bridge before six and been in the hiding ever since, until Mr. Douglas came into the room after eleven. "'That is so. Mr. Douglas went round the house every night, the last thing before he turned in to see that the lights were right. That brought him in here. The man was waiting and shot him, then he got away through the window and left his gun behind him. That's how I read it, for nothing else will fit the facts." The sergeant picked up a card which lay beside the dead man on the floor. The initials V V, and under them the number 341 were rudely scrawled in ink upon it. "'What's this?' he asked, holding it up. Barker looked at it with curiosity. I never noticed it before," he said. The murderer must have left it behind him. V. V. 341. I can make no sense of that." The sergeant kept turning it over in his big fingers. What's V. V.? Somebody's initials, maybe. What have you got there, Dr. Wood? It was a good-sized hammer which had been lying on the rug in front of the fireplace—a substantial workmanlike hammer. Cecil Barker pointed to a box of brass-headed nails upon the mantelpiece. "'Mr. Douglas was altering the pictures yesterday,' he said. "'I saw him myself, standing upon that chair and fixing the big picture above it. That accounts for the hammer.' "'We'd best put it back in the rug where we found it,' said the sergeant, scratching his puzzled head in his perplexity. It will want the best brains in the force to get to the bottom of this thing.' It'll be London job before it's finished. He raised the hand lamp, and walked slowly round the room. Hello, he cried excitedly, drawing the window curtain to one side. What o'clock were these curtains drawn? When the lamps were lit, said the butler. It will be shortly after four. Someone had been hiding here, sure enough. He held down the light, and the marks of muddy boots were very visible in the corner. I'm bound to say this bears out your theory, Mr. Barker. It looks as if the man got into the house after four when the curtains were drawn, and before six when the bridge was raised. He slipped into his room because it was the first that he saw. There was no other place where he could hide, so he popped in behind this curtain. That all seems clear enough. It is likely that his main idea was to burgle the house, but Mr. Douglas chanced to come upon him, so he murdered him and escaped." "'That's how I read it,' said Barker. "'But I say, aren't we wasting precious time? Couldn't we start out and scout the country before the fellow gets away?' The sergeant considered for a moment. "'There are no trains before six in the morning, so he can't get away by rail. If he goes by road with his legs all dripping, it's odds that some one will notice him. Anyhow, I can't leave here myself until I'm relieved.' but i think none of you should go until we see more clearly how we all stand the doctor had taken the lamp and was narrowly scrutinizing the body what's this mark he asked could this have any connection with the crime the dead man's right arm was thrust out from his dressing gown and exposed as high as the elbow about halfway up the forearm was a curious brown design a triangle inside a circle standing out in vivid relief upon the lard-coloured skin. "'It's not tattooed,' said the doctor, peering through his glasses. "'I never saw anything like it. The man has been branded at some time, as they brand cattle. What is the meaning of this?' "'I don't profess to know the meaning of it,' said Cecil Barker. "'But I have seen the mark on Douglas many times this last ten years.' "'And so have I,' said the butler. "'Many a time when the master has rolled up his sleeves, I have noticed that very mark. I have often wondered what it could be." "'Then it has nothing to do with the crime, anyhow,' said the sergeant. "'But it's a rum thing all the same. Everything about this case is rum. Well, what is it now?' The butler had given an exclamation of astonishment, and was pointing at the dead man's outstretched hand. "'They've taken his wedding-ring,' he gasped. "'What?' "'Yes, indeed.' Master always wore his plain gold wedding-ring on the little finger of his left hand. That ring with the saw nugget on it was above it, and the twisted snake-ring on the third finger. There's the nugget, and there's the snake. But the wedding-ring is gone." "'He's right,' said Barker. "'Do you tell me,' said the sergeant, "'that the wedding-ring was below the other?' "'Always.' "'Then the murderer—' or whoever it was, first took off this ring you call the Nugget Ring, then the Wedding Ring, and afterwards put the Nugget Ring back again." "'That is so!' The worthy country policeman shook his head. "'Seems to me. The sooner we get London on to this case, the better,' said he. "'White Mason is a smart man. No local job has ever been too much for White Mason. It won't be long now before he's here to help us.' but I expect we'll have to look to London before we're through. Anyhow, I am not ashamed to say that is a deal too thick for the likes of me. End of chapter 3 Chapter 4 of The Valley of Fear by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. CHAPTER Four, DARKNESS At three in the morning the chief Sussex detective, obeying the urgent call from Sergeant Wilson of Burlston, arrived from headquarters in a light dog-cart behind a breathless trotter. By the 5.40 train in the morning he had sent his message to Scotland Yard, and he was at the Burlstone station at twelve o'clock to welcome us. White Mason was a quiet, comfortable-looking person in a loose tweed suit with a clean-shaved, ruddy face, a stoutish body, and powerful bandy legs, adorned with gaiters, looking like a small farmer, a retired gamekeeper, or anything upon earth except a very favourable specimen of the provincial criminal officer. "'A real downright snorter, Mr. MacDonald,' he kept repeating, "'we'll have the pressmen down like flies when they understand it. I am hoping we will get our work done before they get poking their noses into it and messing up all the trails.' there has been nothing like this that I can remember. There are some bits that will come home to you, Mr. Holmes, or I am mistaken. And you also, Dr. Watson, for the medicos will have a word to say before we finish. Your room is at the Westville Arms. There is no other place, but I hear that it is clean and good. The man will carry your bags. This way, gentlemen, if you please." He was a very bustling and genial person, this Sussex detective. In ten minutes we had all found our quarters. In ten more we were seated in the parlour of the inn, and being treated to a rapid sketch of those events which have been outlined in the previous chapter. MacDonald made an occasional note, while Holmes sat absorbed with the expression of surprised and reverent admiration with which the botanist surveys the rare and precious bloom. "'Remarkable,' he said, when the story was unfolded. "'Most remarkable!' I can hardly recall any case where the features have been more peculiar." "'I thought you would say so, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason in great delight. "'We are well up with the times in Sussex. I have told you now how matters were up to the time when I took over from Sergeant Wilson between three and four this morning. My word, I made the old mare go! But I need not have been in such a hurry as it turned out, for there was nothing immediate that I could do." Sergeant Wilson had all the facts. I checked them and considered them, and maybe added a few of my own." "'What were they?' asked Holmes eagerly. "'Well, I first had the hammer examined. There was Dr. Wood there to help me. We found no signs of violence upon it. I was hoping that if Mr. Douglas defended himself with the hammer he might have left his mark upon the murderer before he dropped it on the mat. But there was no stain. "'That, of course, proves nothing at all,' remarked Inspector MacDonald. "'There has been many a hammer-murder, and no trace on the hammer.' "'Quite so. It doesn't prove it wasn't used. But there might have been stains, and that would have helped us. As a matter of fact, there were none. Then I examined the gun. They were buckshot cartridges, and, as Sergeant Wilson pointed out, the triggers were wired together so that if you pulled on the hinder one—' both barrels were discharged. Whoever fixed that up had made up his mind that he was going to take no chances of missing his man. The sword-gun was not more than two feet long. One could carry it easily under one's coat. There was no complete maker's name, but the printed letters P, E, N were on the fluting between the barrels, and the rest of the name had been cut off by the saw. A big P with a flourish above it, E and N smaller asked Holmes. Exactly. Pennsylvania Small Arms Company—well-known American firm," said Holmes. White Mason gazed at my friend as the little village practitioner looks at the Harley Street Specialist, who, by a word, can solve the difficulties that perplex him. That is very helpful, Mr. Holmes. No doubt you are right. Wonderful! Wonderful! Do you carry the names of all the gunmakers in the world in your memory?" Holmes dismissed the subject with a wave. "'No doubt it is an American shotgun,' White Mason continued. "'I seem to have read that a sawed-off shotgun is a weapon used in some parts of America. Apart from the name upon the barrel, the idea had occurred to me. There is some evidence, then, that this man who entered the house and killed its master was an American.' MacDonald shook his head. Man. "'You're surely travelling over-fast,' said he. "'I've heard no evidence yet that any stranger was ever in the house at all.' "'The open window—the blood on the sill, the queer card, the marks of boots in the corner—the gun—' "'Nothing there that could not have been arranged Mr. Douglas was an American who had lived long in America. So had Mr. Barker. You don't need to import an American from outside in order to account for American doings.' Ames, the butler!' "'What about him? Is he reliable?' Ten years with Sir Charles Chandos, as solid as a rock. He's been with Douglas ever since he took the manor house five years ago. He's never seen a gun of this sort in the house.' "'The gun was made to conceal. That's why the barrels were sawed. It would fit into any box. How could he swear there was no such gun in the house?' "'Well, anyhow, he had never seen one.' MacDonald shook his obstinate Scotch head. "'I'm not convinced yet that there was ever anyone in the house,' said he. "'I'm asking you to consider—' His accent became more Aberdonian as he lost himself in his argument. "'I'm asking you to consider what it involves if you suppose that his gun has ever brought into the house, and that all these strange things were done by a person from outside. Oh, man, it's just inconceivable it's clean against common sense i put it to you mr holmes judging it by what we've heard well state your case mr mack said holmes in his most judicial style the man is not a burglar supposing that he ever existed the ring business and the card point to premeditated murder for some private reason very good here's a man who slips into a house with the deliberate intention of committing murder he knows if he knows anything that he'll have a difficulty in making his escape, as the house is surrounded with water. What weapon would he choose? you would say the most silent in the world. Then he would hope, when the deed was done, to slip quickly from the window, to wade the moat, and to get away at his leisure. That's understandable. But is it understandable that he should go out of his way to bring with him the most noisy weapon he could select?" knowing well that it will fetch every human being in the house to the spot as quick as he could run, and that it is all odds that he will be seen before he can go across the moat. Is that credible, Mr. Holmes?" "'Well, you put the case strongly,' my friend replied thoughtfully. "'It certainly needs a good deal of justification. May I ask Mr. White Mason whether you examined the farther side of the moat at once to see if there were any signs of the man having climbed out from the water?' There were no signs, Mr. Holmes, but it is a stone ledge, and one could hardly expect them." No tracks or marks? None? Ah! would there be any objection, Mr. White Mason, to our going down to the house at once? There may possibly be some small point which might be suggestive. I was going to propose it, Mr. Holmes, but I thought it well to put you in touch with all the facts before we go. I suppose if anything should strike you— White Mason looked doubtfully at the amateur. "'I have worked with Mr. Holmes before,' said Inspector MacDonald. "'He plays the game.' "'My own idea of the game, at any rate,' said Holmes, with a smile. "'I go into a case to help the ends of justice and the work of the police. If I have ever separated myself from the official force, it is because they have first separated themselves from me. I have no wish ever to score at their expense. At the same time, Mr. Whitemason, I claim the right to work in my own way and give my results at my own time, complete rather than in stages. I'm sure we are honored by your presence and to show you all we know, said Whitemason cordially. Come along, Dr. Watson, and when the time comes we'll all hope for a place in your book. We walked down the quaint village street with a row of pollarded elms on each side of it just beyond, were two ancient stone pillars, weather-stained and lichen-blotched, bearing upon their summits a shapeless something which had once been the rampant lion of Capus of Burlstone. A short walk along the winding drive, with such sward and oaks around it as one only sees in rural England, then a sudden turn, and the long, low, Jacobean house of dingy, liver-coloured brick lay before us with an old-fashioned garden of cut yews on each side of it. As we approached it there was the wooden drawbridge and the beautiful broad moat as still and luminous as quicksilver in the cold winter sunshine. Three centuries had flowed past the old manor house—centuries of births and of homecomings, of country dances and of the meetings of fox-hunters. Strange that now in its old age this dark business should have cast its shadow upon the venerable walls. And yet those strange peaked roofs and quaint overhung gables were a fitting covering to grim and terrible intrigue. As I looked at the deep-set windows, and the long sweep of the dull-colored water-lapped front, I felt that no more fitting scene could be set for such a tragedy. "'That's the window,' said White Mason. "'That one on the immediate right of the drawbridge.' It's open just as it was found last night." It looks rather narrow for a man to pass. Well, it wasn't a fat man, anyhow. We don't need your deductions, Mr. Holmes, to tell us that. But you or I could squeeze through all right." Holmes walked to the edge of the moat and looked across. Then he examined the stone ledge and the grass border beyond it. "'I've had a good look, Mr. Holmes,' said White Mason. "'There's nothing there. No sign that anyone has landed. But why should he leave any sign?" "'Exactly. Why should he? Is the water always turbid?" "'Generally about this colour. The stream brings down the clay." "'How deep is it?' "'About two feet at each side, and three in the middle." "'So we can put aside all idea of the man having been drowned in crossing." "'No! A child could not be drowned in it." We walked across the drawbridge, and were admitted by a quaint, gnarled, dried-up person who was the butler Ames. The poor old fellow was white and quivering from the shock. The village sergeant, a tall, formal, melancholy man, still held his vigil in the room of fate. The doctor had departed. "'Anything fresh, Sergeant Wilson?' asked White Mason. "'No, sir.' "'Then you can go home. You've had enough.' We can send for you if we want you. The butler had better wait outside. Tell him to warn Mr. Cecil Barker, Mrs. Douglas, and the housekeeper, that we may want a word with them presently. Now, gentlemen, perhaps you will allow me to give you the views I have formed first, and then you will be able to arrive at your own." He impressed me, this country specialist. He had a solid grip of fact and a cool, clear, common-sense brain which should take him some way in his profession. Holmes listened to him intently, with no sign of that impatience which the official exponent too often produced. "'Is it suicide, or is it murder? That's our first question, gentlemen, is it not? If it was suicide, then we have to believe that this man began by taking off his wedding ring and concealing it, that he then came down here in his dressing-gown, trampled mud into a corner behind the curtain in order to give the idea some one had waited for him, open the window, put blood on the—' "'We can surely dismiss that,' said MacDonald. "'So, I think. Suicide is out of the question. Then a murder has been done. What we have to determine is whether it was done by someone outside or inside the house.' "'Well, let's hear the argument.' "'There are considerable difficulties both ways. And yet one or the other it must be.' We will suppose first that some person or persons inside the house did the crime. They got this man down here at a time when everything was still, and yet no one was asleep. They then did the deed with the queerest and noisiest weapon in the world so as to tell everyone what had happened—a weapon that was never seen in the house before. That does not seem a very likely start, does it?" No, it does not well then everyone is agreed that after the alarm was given only a minute at the most had passed before the whole household not mr cecil barker alone though he claims to have been the first but ames and all of them were on the spot you tell me that in that time the guilty person managed to make footmarks in the corner open the window mark the sill with blood taking the wedding ring off the dead man's finger and all the rest of it it's impossible You put it very clearly," said Holmes. I am inclined to agree with you. Well, then, we are driven back to the theory that it was done by someone from outside. We are still faced with some big difficulties, but, anyhow, they have ceased to be impossibilities. The man got into the house between four-thirty and six—that is to say, between dusk and the time when the bridge was raised. There had been some visitors, and the door was open so there was nothing to prevent him. He may have been a common burglar, or he may have had some private grudge against Mr. Douglas. Since Mr. Douglas had spent most of his life in America, and this shotgun seems to be an American weapon, it would seem that the private grudge is the more likely theory. He slipped into this room because it was the first he came to, and he hid behind the curtain There he remained until half-past eleven at night. At that time Mr. Douglas entered the room. It was a short interview, if there were any interview at all. For Mrs. Douglas declares that her husband had not left her more than a few minutes when she heard the shot." "'The candle shows that,' said Holmes. "'Exactly. The candle, which was a new one, is not burned more than half an inch. He must have placed it on the table before he was attacked. Otherwise, of course, it would have fallen when he fell. This shows that he was not attacked the instant that he entered the room. When Mr. Barker arrived, the candle was lit and the lamp was out. That's all clear enough. Well, now, we can reconstruct things on those lines. Mr. Douglas enters the room. He puts down the candle. A man appears from behind the curtain. He's armed with this gun. He demands the wedding ring. Heaven only knows why, but so it must have been. Mr. Douglas gave it up, then either in cold blood or in the course of a struggle, Douglas may have gripped the hammer that was found upon the mat. He shot Douglas in this horrible way. He dropped his gun, and also it would seem this queer card V 341 whatever that may mean—and he made his escape through the window and across the moat at the very moment when Cecil Barker was discovering the crime. How's that, Mr. Holmes?" Very interesting, but just a little unconvincing. "'Man, it would be absolute nonsense if it wasn't that anything else is even worse!' cried MacDonald. "'Somebody killed the man, and whoever it was I could clearly prove to you that he should have done it some other way. What does he mean by allowing his retreat to be cut off like that? What does he mean by using a shotgun when silence was his one chance of escape? Come, Mr. Holmes, it's up to you to give us a lead, since you say Mr. White Mason's theory is unconvincing." Holmes had sat intently observant during this long discussion, missing no word that was said with his keen eyes darting to right and to left, and his forehead wrinkled with speculation. I should like a few more facts before I get so far as a theory, Mr. Mack," said he, kneeling down beside the body. Dear me, these injuries are really appalling. Can we have the butler in for a moment? Ames, I understand that you have often seen this very unusual mark—a branded triangle inside a circle upon Mr. Douglas's forearm. Frequently, sir. You never heard any speculation as to what it meant? No, sir. It must have caused great pain when it was inflicted. It is undoubtedly a burn. Now, I observe, Ames, that there is a small piece of plaster at the angle of Mr. Douglas's jaw. Did you observe that in life?" "'Yes, sir. He cut himself in shaving yesterday morning." "'Did you ever know him to cut himself in shaving before?' "'Not for a very long time, sir." "'Suggestive,' said Holmes. It may, of course, be a mere coincidence, or it may point to some nervousness which would indicate that he had reason to apprehend danger. Had you noticed anything unusual in his conduct yesterday, Ames?" "'It struck me, sir, that he was a little restless and excited, sir." "'Ha! The attack may not have been entirely unexpected. We do seem to make a little progress, do we not? Perhaps you would rather do the questioning, Mr. Mack?" No, oh, Mr. Holmes. It's in better hands than mine." "'Well, then, we will pass to this card. V. V. 341. It is rough cardboard. Have you any of the sort in this house?' I don't think so." Holmes walked across to the desk and dabbed a little ink from each bottle on the blotting paper. "'It was not printed in this room,' he said. "'This is black ink and the other purplish. It was done by a thick pen, and these are fine. No, it was done elsewhere, I should say. Can you make anything of the inscription, Ames?" "'No, sir. Nothing.' "'What do you think, Mr. Mack?' "'It gives me the impression of a secret society of some sort—the same with his badge upon the forearm.' "'That's my idea, too,' said White Mason. Well, we can adopt it as a working hypothesis, and then see how far our difficulties disappear. An agent from such a society makes his way into the house, waits for Mr. Douglas, blows his head nearly off with his weapon, and escapes by wading the moat after leaving a card beside the dead man, which will, when mentioned in the papers, tell other members of the society that vengeance has been done. That all hangs together. But why this gun of all weapons?" -"Exactly." -"And why the missing ring?" -"Quite so." And why no arrest? It's past two now. I take it for granted that since dawn every constable within forty miles has been looking out for a wet stranger. -"That is so, Mr. Holmes." -"Well, unless he has a burrow close by, or a change of clothes ready, they can hardly miss him." and yet they have missed him up to now." Holmes had gone to the window and was examining with his lens the blood-mark on the sill. It is clearly the tread of a shoe. It is remarkably broad. A splay foot, one would say. Curious, because so far as one can trace any footmark in this mud-stained corner, one would say it was a more shapely sole. However, they are certainly very indistinct what's this under the side table mr douglas dumbbells said ames dumbbell there's only one where's the other i oh, don't know mr holmes there may have been only one i've not noticed them for months one dumbbell holmes said seriously but his remarks were interrupted by a sharp knock at the door a tall sunburned capable-looking clean-shaved man looked in at us I had no difficulty in guessing that it was the Cecil Barker of whom I had heard. His masterful eyes travelled quickly with a questioning glance from face to face. "'Sorry to interrupt your consultation,' said he, "'but you should hear the latest news.' "'An arrest?' "'No such luck. But they found his bicycle. The fellow left his bicycle behind him. Come and have a look. It is within a hundred yards of the hall door.' We found three or four grooms and idlers standing in the drive, inspecting a bicycle which had been drawn out from a clump of evergreens in which it had been concealed. It was a well-used Rudge Whitworth, splashed as from a considerable journey. There was a saddle-bag with a spanner and oil-can, but no clue as to the owner. "'It would be a grand help to the police,' said the inspector, "'if these things were numbered and registered. But we must be thankful for what we've got. If we can't find where he went to, at least we're likely to get where he came from. But what in the name of all that is wonderful made the fellow leave it behind, and how in the world has he got away without it? We don't seem to get a gleam of light in the case, Mr. Holmes." "'Don't we?' my friend answered thoughtfully. "'I wonder.'" End of chapter 4